were to go right in your life, what would your life look like? Would What would your idea, your perfect ideal life look like for you? Your dream. Most of you probably have some kind of idea of what you would like because you're probably actively trying to achieve this life one day. Whether or not you'll be able to reach it, you're aiming for it now. Now, maybe your perfect dream scenario would include a husband or a wife or may, that you either already have or that you hope to find one day. Or many of you would want uh, your children, whether your future children or current children, maybe your grandchildren involved. In a perfect world, you might say, oh, I'd like the 2.3 kids that society is telling us that you should have, or whatever the number is now. I tell you, I'd hate to be the third of the kid. <laughs> what would your job be in a dream world? What field? How much would you be paid for it? Or would you prefer to just reach a place where you don't have to work at all? Right? Many of us would say, yeah, retirement, that's where it's at. Can't wait to get there. In a perfect life, would you have a big home? Nice vehicles? Lots of friends? Would your bank account's balance have a certain number of zeros at the end of it? At what point, at what point in your life would you truly feel you could say, I've made it? At what point would that be? Now, these can be some penetrating questions because they can expose some of our heart's true desires, what we really long for. And it can be convicting to realize how much hope we can place in things of this life or people of this life. How much we look for other things or other people to fulfill us or satisfy us, to make us happy, instead of looking to God to satisfy our deepest needs and desires. I want you to, to ponder these things because we're going to begin studying a man today who by all of our usual human standards had totally made it. Totally made it. His life actually seemed perfect. He had achieved all the life had to offer. He was a good man, a family man, a rich man, a successful man, and a popular man. But all the while, the question lingers. Was his life really perfect? Or was something missing? Can morality and family and prosperity satisfy a man or a woman? Or is there something more? I'd like to invite you to open up your Bibles with me to the book of Job in the Old Testament today. If you don't know where Job is, I suggest you open up right to the very middle of your Bibles, which will likely put you somewhere in the book of Psalms, and then turn back one book previous to Psalms till you reach Job. If you're using one of the Bibles from the pews, I'll help you cheat. Job begins on page 417. All right? Job chapter 1, page 417. But before we see what God has to say through this very interesting part of his word, 
I'd request that you pray with me, because we need his help, his blessing on this morning. So please bow your heads and pray with me. O Lord, as we sing, O God, how I need you, how we need you. You are the fountain of all good in our lives. We want to thank you and praise you this morning that death is dead, that love has won through your cross. We pray that you would lead us to that again today, that you would teach us to run to you, teach us to fall on you, teach us what we need to know about you to live our lives properly. You are our only hope, our only defense, our only righteousness, and so we come to you today asking once again that your spirit would come to us and teach us your word today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Job is an extremely unique book among the books of the Bible. There is no other book like it. It is insightful, it's powerful, sometimes it's confusing, but it's very fascinating. If, you re- if you've ever read through it. We don't know who wrote the book or when it was written. It's quite a lengthy book. It's made up of 42 chapters, which is 18 more than Luke, which we just took about three years to go through. <laughs> now, we won't go quite as slowly with Job, but we don't want to rush either, because there are jewels to be mined throughout the book. So it's a lengthy book. The, the literary genre of the book is also very unique. It starts and finishes with a couple chapters of historical narrative or prose, if you will. We believe, therefore, it is a true story from some time in history. But sandwiched in between the, these bookends of the story's plot are about 40 chapters of wisdom poetry, what people call it, which mainly takes the shape here of, of dialogue between the main characters as they argue and debate and accuse each other and defend themselves. But we're not going to be in the poetry yet today, so today it starts in the historical part, and it's really just an introduction to the main character of the book. A few minutes ago, we had a greeting time when you probably shook some hands and maybe introduced yourself to someone. And if you, if you got to see someone new and you introduce yourself to them, maybe you learn their name, something's very small and brief about them. Uh, the question is, is how many details of that can you still remember? Right? Can you even remember their name? Well, after church, relearn it, okay? But we, the point is, we are easily distracted or unfocused when someone introduces themselves to us. Maybe we're bored, maybe we're forgetful, maybe we're just that self-focused. But today, I want to encourage you and ask you to focus in, okay? Play, pay close attention, and don't forget the details of this introduction, because the, the entire passage we're going to see functions as a personal introduction, which really will set the stage of what we're going to see happen in the weeks and months ahead. So God says through his word, I'd like to introduce you to my friend Job. Okay? Book begins this way. In verse 1 it says, There was a man 
in the land of Uz, whose name was Job. So, Job's from the land of Uz. We don't know exactly where Uz was. Okay? It sounds like something Dr. Seuss made up, but it's not. We, it was most likely somewhere near Edom, which is modern-day Jordan or northern Saudi Arabia. Okay? The key thing to note is that it's not Canaan. It's not Israel. Not the promised land. So this is a foreigner to God's people. We also don't know when exactly Job lived in history. Sensing a theme? Don't know a lot of the background details of the book. Most scholars speculate that Job lived sometime around the same time as Abraham. So he's a contemporary of Abraham. So about 2,000 years before Christ, give or take a couple centuries. But wherever and whenever he lived, Job himself is a fascinating individual. The book is named after him for good reason. He's not only introduced first to all the narrative scenes focused on what happened to Job and all the conversations and speeches were either made by Job or addressed to Job. So he's either center stage or the center of discussion for the entire book. But I have to add... On top of that, before we continue, while the book of Job is focused on the person of Job on a deeper level, the book of Job is really about Job's God. And that we believe that's the same God that is our God, the God of the Bible. And how God practically relates to his world and his people in the world. Most often, what we're going to see is most often about how God and his sovereignty relates to the suffering of this world. However, today's passage isn't about suffering. Job's introduction is really the polar opposite. We'll be exploring a lot of grief and and sorrow in this book, so it's nice today that we can begin on a more lighthearted message. Okay, so you ready to meet Job more in depth? Let's go ahead and read. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There was born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. In this introduction to Job, we see three key characteristics about Job. And what I just said about this book being about Job, but being more about God, holds true. Because each of these three aspects of Job's life will reveal something about God to us. The first thing we notice, Job was a really good guy. Okay? Squeaky clean. So what does Job's excellent character tell us about God? Here's what I think. 
Job's exemplary character reveals God's desired ideal. Okay, Job's exemplary character reveals God's desired ideal. His character is exemplary, and as such, it reveals the way God wants his people to live. If, if everyone was like Job, God would be really happy. Okay, now, got to really nuance this, because if I didn't, this could lead to plain old moralism. We don't want that. But first of all, let me ask, was Job perfect? No, most certainly not. The King James Version actually says that Job was perfect. That's not a good translation of the words. But an even better translation, it, it sounds like he nearly was perfect, does it not? There was a man in the land of us whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and who turned away from evil. So he said to have four notable characteristics. He was blameless upright, feared God, and he turned away from evil. And when we hear that list, it sounds fairly impossible. Each part does, but especially the first one, right? We think, well, we can try to turn away from evil in our lives, and we can generally fear God, and maybe we can maybe be considered an upright person, but blameless? <laughs> ah can't do that. The problem here is that we equate blamelessness with sinlessness and perfection. The Hebrew word is different than that. The Hebrew word here for blameless refers more to a genuineness, an authenticity, a sincerity. Uh, it's essentially referring to his integrity. Okay, so he was not a hypocrite in his life. Christopher Ash says this, says the same idea is conveyed by the old expression used by some of the rabbis, his within was like his without. Or as we might put it, what you see is what you get. When you see Job at work, when you hear his words, when you watch his deeds, you see an accurate reflection of what is really going on in his heart. And if, you're, if you read through the Bible, it's very similar language is used to describe other biblical heroes like Abraham or Noah or Daniel, or others. See, the Bible has this tendency to talk up certain heroes of the faith, and then it proceeds to show us how imperfect they really are. But they're still blameless. But they're imperfect. But they're still blameless. What's interesting about Job is that we're never really shown his imperfections. It's very interesting never really shows us these, but we know they had to be there. On at least three occasions later on, Job admits his sin and repents. At the same time, Job himself is claiming to be blameless himself. So, these two things are somehow not mutually exclusive. We'll see that Job's integrity becomes a key topic of discussion in this book. Christopher Ash says again, says, as the drama develops, we shall be sorely tempted to think that Job is hiding something, that he is not as squeaky clean as he appears, that he is not blameless. We need to remember that he is blameless. The writer has headlined this wonderful characteristic of him. 
Something to keep in mind. So blameless. Next, he's upright. It probably refers to his human relationship. So he could be trusted to do fair business and, and deal straight. He wasn't corrupt. He's an upright person. Third, he feared God. So he had a holy reverence for who God was. He knew that God was powerful and awesome and holy and therefore should be feared. We are so unlike him. So Job worshipped God. He obeyed God. And he actively forsook the sin that God hated. That's the fourth aspect of his character here. Says he was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Other versions say he shunned evil. Essentially, he was known for his repentance. Many of you have um, sensitivities or allergies to certain foods, maybe nuts or gluten or dairy or, or whatever. And once you find out, whether you have one or not, if you were to find out that you have an allergy, that a, a certain type of food is harmful to you, you've got to stop eating it, right? And sometimes it can be even deadly dangerous for you to get near it, maybe smell it or touch it. I knew someone who was so allergic to peanuts that if someone had touched peanuts and then touched a doorknob that they touched it would be deadly to them. They had to be crazy careful about what they did. And when you might refuse to eat a, a bread or a dessert or a cheese or whatever, you shun the food. Make sure that you don't have it. I think that can be a good picture of what it means to truly repent. Uh, of shunning evil. See, because when we find out that sin is harmful to us in many ways, we've got to stop doing it. Okay? And if we don't turn away from it, it can prove to be deadly dangerous to us. We've got to watch out for even what doorknobs we touch, what buttons we click, what things we watch. Even if others are doing it, or even if it looks delicious or, or pleasing, we've got to shun evil. We can't keep looking at porn. We can't keep gossiping. We can't keep living a life of disobedience. If you fear God, you will shun evil. Job's character traits here are truly wonderful characteristics. And I think it's undeniable that this is God's desire that his people would live like this. If you have any doubt, just wait till you see how God brags about Job later in chapter 1. Now, should we try to be righteous on our own, good on our own, without Christ or the Holy Spirit? Never. But neither should we neglect the clear commands of God in Scripture. You can't, you have to do both. Jesus in, in Matthew 5.48 said, You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Similarly, 1 Peter 1.15, But as he who called you is holy, so also be 
holy in all your conduct. The book of Ecclesiastes ends this way. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Proverbs 3.7 tells us, Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Psalm 34.14, Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. And like we read a couple weeks ago in Acts 3, Repent, therefore, turn again, so that your sins may be blotted out. This list can go on and on. right? The point is, God wants us, no, he commands us to live this way. Therefore, Job is rightfully presented as an example of godly living. He was not sinless or perfect, but he is, uh, he's basically a model of a true believer. Any of us with true faith in God will repent of our sin in the fear of God. And then God grants us Christ's righteousness and blamelessness and perfection, all the while empowering us by the Spirit to keep growing in them. It's the model of a true believer. So you intrigued by Job yet? Pretty impressive, right? Look how he's described next. Verse 2. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man, catch it, was the greatest of all the people of the East. So Job was rich in just about every sense of the word. Rich in godliness, as we just saw, but also rich in family and rich in riches. And what we see from these verses is this, I believe. Job's extravagant wealth, Job's extravagant wealth reveals God's rich blessings. Job's vast riches, his family, finances, his flocks, can reveal God's blessings to him. Job's extravagant wealth reveals God's rich blessings. Look through them just briefly. Job and his wife were definitely not barren. They had been bountifully blessed with children. Psalm 127 says in verse 3, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. And then the same psalm goes on to say that whoever has a bunch of kids is blessed. Job had a bunch of kids. Said he had seven sons and three daughters. If you're very familiar with the Bible, you'll know that some numbers in the Bible seem special. Certain numbers can represent certain things. Think of seven or twelve or forty or even six six six. Right? They represent things. Seven, three, and ten are all seen as good numbers in the Bible. Seven sons three daughters, ten kids. Job had the ideal, perfect, seemingly perfect family, the envy of the neighborhood. But not only did Job have a lot of kids, he had a lot of critters. 
In the ancient world, wealth was often measured in livestock. The more cows and sheep and goats and horses you had, the richer you were. It's still that way in some places in our world. It's how the economy works. And Job, we see he must have been a farmer by trade. We know he was not a nomadic wanderer like Abraham. He lived in houses. He lived near a city. But as far as farmers go, he was wildly successful. He is therefore extravagantly wealthy. 7,000 sheep. That's a lot of sheep. Okay? Never seen that many sheep before. Trust me. The sheep were used for food or clothing, many things. Had 3,000 camels used for transportation and probably trading. 500 yoke of oxen, so at least 1,000 oxen used for plowing fields, probably for their milk as well. And then he had 500 female donkeys. He probably had males too. But these were used for carrying things, for breeding. All right, verse 3 also says that Job had very many servants. We don't know whether they were hired or indentured or enslaved, but these servants would have been used to upkeep his house and his estate, work the land, care for the animals, even to serve as a private military force. Just to, if you think about it, just to take care of that many animals must have required hundreds of servants. And note that we're not told how much land Job had, kind of housing he had, any monetary assets. We don't know what kind of or how many crops of food Job produced with this many flocks and servants. In modern equivalents, Job would have been at least a multimillionaire, if not billionaire. One estimate is that he had at least about 200 million in assets of livestock alone. Okay, so he'd be at the top of the Forbes 500. The richest people in the world. He was like the Bill Gates or Warren Buffett of the ancient Near East. No wonder verse 3 says that Job was the greatest of all the people of the East. No matter what measurement you use, he was great. Moral, righteous, honest, good, check. Okay, family and relationships, check. Livestock, servants, land, money, check. Influence, fame, power, check. Here's the thing about all this wealth, though. Everything Job owned was a result of God's blessing. If it weren't for God choosing to bless him, Job would have had nothing. How do I know this? How do I know that Job just didn't work really hard to earn everything he got in life? Well, Job probably did work hard. But hard work doesn't guarantee anything. Many of you know that firsthand. I know that his abundance was a result of God's blessing because of what is said later on in chapter 1. When God, we're going to get to this next week, but when God and Satan were discussing Job, Satan said this in verse 9. So then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? 
Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. Now, Satan was a chronic liar, but everything he said there was true. Because ultimately, God owns everything, and everything comes from God. The earth is the Lord, and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Deuteronomy 8 says, Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. Likewise, everything that you own is actually God's possession first. We're just stewards. We're the servants. Okay? All your wealth, whether great or small, comes from God as a blessing from Him. And that should have huge bearing on how we spend or use what we possess. Now, this point that I just gave you is actually a very dangerous point. It's true, but it's dangerous because it can be easily misinterpreted. And if you misinterpret it, it can actually lead to a completely false gospel. See, we can read verse 1 that Job was really godly. And then we read verse 2 and 3 that Job was really rich. And we think there must be a correlation between verse 1 and verse 2 and 3. God must have blessed Job because he was so godly. So, if we think that way, then we conclude, well, if I'm more godly then God should bless me with wealth. Or we even think, if being rich is a sign that God is pleased with you in your life. Or maybe that we should aspire to being rich, like Job, to attain God's blessing on us. No! Wrong! False! Bad Conclusion. Okay? Many people assume that there's this correlation between Job's godliness and his prosperity. But is there? Look carefully. Do you see a correlation in these verses? No, because it's not there. Don't read something into the Bible that isn't there. Job is godly, and Job is blessed by God, but these are not cause and effect. So we're going to see in Job, this is the assumption that most people made in Job's day too. And they assumed that the righteous prosper and the wicked flounder. But this is the health and wealth and prosperity gospel, and Job becomes exhibit A that it is not true. 
God can bless people in poverty without any riches to speak of. He can also bless the wicked with great wealth on earth. We see it every day. You can say wealth is a sign of God's blessing, but it's not necessarily a sign of his pleasure. God can bless the godly. He may often do so, but it is absolutely no guarantee. The truth to hold on here is this, that all wealth, no matter who you are, ultimately comes from God. No matter how much you have, no matter where it comes from here on earth, it's from God ultimately. And Job was, as we have seen, is richly, richly blessed by God. Now, when we hear how posh and how powerful Job was, we think, wow, he really did have it made. Right? He, he shouldn't have had any concerns in the world. Everything was taken care of. He could have just sat back, enjoyed his life, maybe retire young, let his servants take care of running everything for him. Sure sounds like Job had the perfect life. Or was it? Was Job's life really the ideal life? Was Job able to live worry-free and care-free? That's not the final picture we're going to get in this introduction to Job. Now, Job doesn't seem too worried or caught up with his stuff, his material possessions, but he does have one clear concern, one anxiety. It was a spiritual concern, and it was about his kids. You see it? In verse 4, his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. We learn an extremely valuable lesson from Job's habits here. Which I put this way. Job's eager concern reveals the need for God's atoning mercy. Job's one anxiety in life, it seems, shows how important it is that we receive God's mercy above all else. Job's eager concern reveals the need for God's atoning mercy. In the world's eyes, Job had everything. But Job rightly knew that there was a greater concern. His children's souls were far more important than surplus or success. A concern that many of us would do well to take to heart as we seek to materially provide for and take care of our families, whether children or parents or whoever. Our children's souls 
are infinitely more important than their wealth, health, or education. You can make your kids rich and talented and healthy and smart and have them end up in hell. We often get into this rut. We prioritize school or sports or work or other things above God in their lives. But what will it profit our children to gain the world and lose their soul? I know some of you here are feeling the pain and maybe regret of children that are not following Jesus. My heart weeps with you. I desperately pray that your kids would return to the Lord. But I also want to encourage you today that it might not be too late for them. They're still breathing. Keep loving them. Keep speaking truth to them. Keep showing them Jesus. Keep praying for them. And if you've failed in these areas in the past, repent of it. And change your ways. Because your kids' souls are far too important to let your pride get in the way. Finally, I'd say to you, if you're a son or a daughter here who has strayed from God, I'd urge you, turn back to God. Turn back to God. Repent of your sins. Shun the evil that is in your life. It doesn't matter what your parents have or haven't done. Hey, don't let your pride or their failures or whatever, don't let them or you prevent you from receiving God's mercy. Your soul's far too important. I need mercy. You need mercy. We all need God's mercy. Job obviously understood this point very well. Just look again what he did routinely. Okay, his sons used to go and hold a, a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. So, we see the picture here. Job's kids were big partiers often throwing lavish parties. It says they would feast each one on his day. Maybe this is referring to birthdays. Don't know. But essentially, they had frequent family get-togethers. They were a a close-knit bunch. And they would wine and dine and dance the night away. Now, we shouldn't assume that these were sinful or sensual parties. After all, later on, Job seems only concerned with inward sin, not outward sin. Okay, so don't assume that. But regardless, Job was concerned about his kids and what might have gone on 
at the feasts. So, the morning after each feast, no matter how often they were, Job did something. He'd, he'd rise early in the morning. So this was a very eager, urgent concern of his. We only wake up early for things that are really important to us. And after waking up, he'd summon his whole family together, and they'd gather around an altar. Probably had one built on his land. And I imagine as they gather there, Job would remind his family of why he called them together. I don't know exactly what you did last night, but you may have sinned. Uh, You may have done or said or here even thought something that offended God. You may have sinned against God in your hearts cursing him inside. Job would then have ten of his animals brought out. Maybe lambs or bulls. And then he would proceed to slaughter one of the animals, have it heaved onto the altar, and then he would burn the carcass as a burnt offering to God. And then he'd do this nine more times, saying, this one's for you. This one's for you. This one's for you. He's basically acting as a priest on behalf of his family. Now, if you picture this scene, what would, what would this activity, this, this picture, communicate to his kids? Sin is awful. Sin must be paid for. In order to pay for sin, something must die. This would be a frequent, visible, smellable, powerful reminder. If I were one of his kids... I bet I'd be annoyed at the early wake-up call, especially after a late-night partying. <laughs> but I'll tell you what I never questioned. Never questioned that my father cared about me. And never questioned that sin was terrible and that we needed God's mercy. Burnt offerings were meant to picture God's wrath consuming an animal instead of the person. That's what the whole picture was. So Job's children would be able to watch these fiery sacrifices right in front of them and think, that would happen to me if there were no sacrifice for sin. See, no matter how wealthy we are, no matter how good we think we are, There's something wrong with us. So we've all sinned. Our souls have strayed, and we need a sacrifice for sin. Riches cannot buy you redemption. Happiness cannot win you righteousness. This life's not perfect after all. Though these events happened long before Christ, they were pointing ahead to Jesus. The need for atonement. 
of reconciliation between God and man was already evident these many years before. Have you ever wondered why so many tribes and peoples and nations in the history of the world have gravitated towards sacrificial systems? Whether plant or animal or human sacrifice? It's because we know it deep inside of us. We have done wrong and we need to be forgiven for our wrong. We, though many have sacrificed in, in wrong ways to, to false gods, tragically, we all recognize where is a desperate need for atonement. Which is why it's such wonderful news that Jesus came to be the ultimate sacrifice for sin. In our mind's eye, we can watch Jesus die on a cross, consumed by God's wrath, and say, that would happen to me if there were no sacrifice for sin. Jesus forever removed the need for any more burnt offerings by being the superior offering. Hebrews 10 says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But then Jesus came, and this happened. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. If it wasn't for Jesus... Your application point for today would be me telling you, go find a cow to kill because something has to die for you. But it's not. Solely because of Jesus. Jesus has offered the final sacrifice that was necessary, the only sacrifice necessary. So, we don't need to be like Job anymore, continually offering sacrifices for our sins or for our kids' sins. Instead, we're called to draw near to Christ by faith, fearing God, turning from evil, and allowing Christ to perfect us with his righteousness. I, I hope and pray that you would do this today if you never have before. And I pray that you would find total forgiveness and mercy at the cross of Christ. You'll likely hear this a number of times over the next months as we study Job together. But Jesus is the true and better Job. Okay? The only perfectly blameless and upright and God-fearing and sinless person ever. There's only one of those. Jesus had even greater wealth than Job. Unthinkable heavenly riches and power. Like Job, Jesus wasn't concerned about his wealth. He was concerned for his children. 
like Job's sacrifice for his children were there while they were probably still hung over. Jesus' sacrifice for his children while we were still sinners. And better than Job, Jesus didn't offer constant sacrifices in an attempt to appease God. Jesus offered one perfect sacrifice of perfect blood that took away sin forever. Jesus was the better man, the richer man, the better father, and the better priest. Remember that. The scene in these opening verses of Job is largely a happy scene, albeit one with a shadow. Everything about Job seems good and great, but not always as it seemed to be. For now, we can only sense the shadow of of darkness looming. Job's prosperity could not guarantee the absence of sin, or worry, or pain, or sorrow. A sacrifice for sin was still absolutely necessary, and pain would still soon come. But for us today, we can take heart that, not Job, that Jesus can guarantee mercy for sin. And though Jesus does not promise to prosper us or or remove our pain or suffering now, he does promise that one day the perfect life will be restored for his people. He can hold on to that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may we feel the full weight of our sin against your throne and realize that we deserve to die. Like these sacrifices that were consumed. This is what we have earned with our lives, God. And even in the midst of that, you have blessed us. You have blessed us so abundantly so frequently, so overwhelmingly, just poured out blessing on us. May we remember these blessings and may we give you the glory for them. May we live for you with them. Lord, you deserve our all. I pray that we would truly surrender it all to you this morning, for it's all yours to begin with. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.